Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Listen for what God is saying to us today. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immortality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know what your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immortality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know what your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. May God add a blessing to the readings of these words. Good morning. Um, blessings to hard words indeed. Would you pray with me? Holy God, open us to something new, something that gives life, something that generates uh, hope and conversation and justice and love. Speak through this time in spite of the people who stand up front, which happens to be me. Let us hear you. Amen. My name is Colton Lott. I am the student pastor uh, in this uh, community, and it is every good word you could think of. So, you know those moments when things just kind of come together? I had one of those weeks where things just came together. Emily asked me to preach on uh, this, the first Sunday of the sermon series, Our Bodies, Our Faith. Uh, I'm currently in a class that's looking at what it means to be a human creature, theological explorations. Uh, and also, in the midst of that soup, uh, in our practice of ministry course, which is the how you be a pastor uh, component, it's what allows me to be here uh, for class time, we were talking about how you teach uh, teenagers and how you teach them about physical intimacy. Uh, so all of this was brewing this week, uh, and so and I was, and in this brew, I was thinking about my own uh, encounters with uh, th uh, education on physical intimacy. Most of you know that I am from rural Oklahoma. If you didn't, you do now. Uh, and I thought, genuinely, and I still kind of do actually, that I am from the most progressive, one of the most progressive cities in uh, Oklahoma, Ada, Oklahoma, forwards and backwards, we are ADA. 
But I, uh, I was thinking about my middle school experiences with physical education or character education, as the euphemism was called. Uh, and the faculty of the science department of Ada Junior High School decided it would be better to have an outside facilitator come and teach us about uh, physical intimacy. And so, and I kid you not, Pastor Tom took the boys, and Pastor Tom's wife, Rhonda, took the girls. And for two days, we talked about uh, our bodies and abstinence and how sex is awesome, but only in marriage. And, uh, and I can't speak to how the women experienced it, other than they got a lot of Hershey Kisses with almonds in it, which represented how they would become pregnant and have to get new clothes. But the men... <laughs> The men were taught to identify what was attractive about women, to celebrate it and fear it, and most of all, fear child support payments. Church wasn't a whole lot better is the problem. My pastor, who I love dearly, who like when I wandered into church when I was six years old, taught me that like we love God because God first loved us was uh, kind of coerced to teach True Love's Weights because the most like influential mother of the youth group suspected that her teenage daughter was having sex and wanted it to stop. And so she made the pastor teach this curriculum that I don't think anybody really believed in. Um, so when it came time for me to be 20 years old and I fell in head over heels in love, I didn't feel like I had a good foundation to really think about physical intimacy, you know, sex. And I knew Pastor Tom's approach wasn't the right one, and I didn't really think I liked the flimsy arguments of true love waits either, which always had love cloaked in deep fear. But I didn't know where to go to ask this question, uh, in part because I wanted to go to my parents, but my parents were really different in approaching the tough issues. My dad's always been loving, but he's not the one that asks sensitive advice from. Dad will support any decision I make, He's just really hard at helping me make the decision. And so he always tells me that I just need to know myself and, and know your values and make the best decision you can. And most of you know that the other side of my parenting duo, my mother, uh, had died by this time in my life. And she was the person you would want to ask such things about. She had more of an experimental approach to life. Um, when I was 13, she told me, now Colton, there may come a day when you want to try drugs. Come to me. Uh, I don't remember if she said we'll do them together, but she would supervise <laughs> so that I wouldn't hurt myself, that I wouldn't be out there in the streets, uh, and to make sure that I really knew what was happening. <laughs> so with the absence of my mother in adulthood, I went to who I thought might be the best analog, which was my mother's mother, Mimi Janice who wanted to be called Mimi, not Grandma, so that's how it continues to this day, because she's not that old. She is that old. <laughs> and so I was home that summer that I was 20, and I asked if we could go get a Coke from the Sonic, which was always code for either we needed to complain about Papa, or I had to ask a deep personal question. And so I was in the car, and we're driving around the park, and I said, you know, what do you think I should do? Well, she said, I think you should do it. Mimi! <laughs> Don't let the world ever tell you that older people are not sex positive. <laughs> well, she said, I'm just telling you what I would do. <laughs> but honestly, Colt, 
I can't tell you what to do. You have to know who you are and what your values are and make a decision based on that. It's the ethical calculus of our lives. This is what my grandmother was trying to teach me. It's what my dad had already taught me. And whether we agree with Mimi's stance on premarital sex or not, what do I do? That question is the one that we ask constantly. I think that might be uh, one of the most intimate things about being a human being is that we make choices all the time. Choices that very rarely have easy answers. Choices that require us to bring our best selves into many, many moments. And the problem when you ask other people, well, what do I do, is that their answers really aren't that helpful most of the time. Because every choice is made in a context. There's always other people involved. Even when we think it's just me, it's never just me. Time is involved. The place we are is involved. And there's a different question. Uh, one that I think might be more profitable in the long run of what do I do, but it's a much more annoying question. It's how do I do? How do I make this decision? How do we make good decisions, healthy decisions, maybe even holy decisions? And how do we make these decisions when there's so much complexity, so much nuance, so much information to be accountable to? That's the ethical calculus. And it's something that we have to do whether we want to or not, by virtue of being. And so in the midst of this question about ethics and calculus is where we find today's scripture. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, which is a church in uh, Corinth, is a city where we would, we would find it in modern-day Greece. Uh, and part of the rub for the Corinthians is that modern-day Greece is also ancient Greece. Uh, the ancient Greeks had a lot to say about who people are and how they should act in the world. And Paul was representing Christianity, which we often forget in that time wasn't quite Christianity yet. It was a splinter group off of Judaism. Uh, and they had also a lot of things to say about who people are and how they should act in the world. Now, the problem is that Judaism and Greek philosophy don't always agree about who people are and how they should act in the world. Now, at the heart of it, the Corinthians were just trying to be good Christians. Whatever that meant is the problem. Figuring out how we live life and get in between these two ways of being in the world. And so over and over again, the Corinthians were asking, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And finally, the debates got too hot, and the lack of clear and easy answers was just too uncomfortable. And so they decided to cash in their phone-a-friend lifeline, and they wrote a letter to their founding pastor. Dear Pastor Paul... You left in such a hurry. We still have some questions. Is it okay to put poor people out on the patio when we're meeting for house church? Because that's how we learned how to do it when we were kids. How much wine can we drink at communion? Does everyone have to get fed? Can we eat the meat that are sacrificed to Greek gods and the other idols? Because there's not a lot of meat in the market that hasn't been sacrificed, and we just really want some goat. Can we have sex like ever? Is it only with our spouse? What about sex for hire? Do our bodies matter when Jesus just came to save our souls? Right back soon. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> we assume that's the, uh, the questions or the types of questions they were sending because the response that Paul gives in this uh, book of 1 Corinthians, this letter, 
uh, to them talks about some of these topics, all of them about how do we be good, how do we live, how do we do this with authenticity and love and justice. And what we read today is crashing in right in the heart of Paul's argument. And old pastor Paul's response is kind of annoying because his answer is that you are asking the wrong question. You can't answer what do we do until you have first answered who are we. And so Paul, like my grandmother and incidentally my father, insists we can't run this ethical calculus unless we know who and whose we are. That answer will change everything every time. And so the church today and in modern days has fought almost exclusively over the last couple of centuries about bodies, about what bodies can do, about what bodies should be, about what bodies can stand in this space or behind this table or in these pews. And it's been so harmful, it's been so wrong, it's been so sinful because so often we don't start <laughs> with who and whose we are. We, so as we are approaching the sermon series as a church, that's why we're starting here, because bodies do things, right? They have sex, they create life, they contract illnesses, they make love, they fall apart, and they die. All of those things are true about what bodies do. But we can't start asking about what they do until we know more about who we actually are. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians, just like Easter reminded us last week, that we are children of God, that God cares about the creation, this world and all that's in it. God cares about human beings very much. That, and so much so that God threw their entire lot in with humanity. Emmanuel, that baby born, was God's yes to all the creation, but especially human beings. And Jesus, that body that was hanging on a tree, was God's yes to all creation, and especially human beings. And Christ, that man resurrected in glory, was God's yes to all of creation, and especially human beings. You were bought with a price, Paul says. It cost God something to say yes. That's who you are. That's whose you are. You, yes, you are a body that God said yes to. And that's good news. That's scandalous, even. Jesus was a body. God, God was a body. God isn't way up there. God's part of things down here. God's part of the things we see and hear and taste and smell and touch. What, God, what Paul knew about God was surreal because Jesus was too real. Jesus was fleshy in his life and in his resurrection. After Easter, Jesus came back and let people touch that scarred body. He ate food. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a zombie. Jesus was a body that wouldn't stay buried. If God could be this fleshy stuff once, then Paul is making a claim that's really, really kind of under the level here, under the level of the, of the words themselves, that it might be that God can be in this fleshy stuff all over again and again and again and again. So the funny thing about the resurrection is that people didn't recognize Jesus at first. And we talked about this last week with Mary, right? She's crying, she sees a gardener, and she thinks it's a gardener, but then she hears the voice, and she realizes it's Jesus. And then she realizes that the gardener thing was a mistake. He wasn't a gardener, he was Jesus. And we see this all over the book of John with the disciples too, who consistently didn't recognize the resurrected Jesus. But then in this flash of life, 
they would recognize, oh, my God, it's God, it's you, Jesus. You got me again. And so Paul's radical because maybe these Christians in Corinth needed to learn some, th- relearn the things they picked up along the way from these Greek and Jewish ancestors. Before, the idea was we could build a temple and keep it holy and entice God to come and stick around. But now, he thinks Jesus made it clear that God wanted to come and stick around much, much closer. And these people, you people, all we people, have God carried around in them. And we can see it, but only if we clear our eyes to do so. Before, the idea was that there was a soul that you could just kind of amputate out of a body and send it on to heaven. The only thing worthwhile about human beings was what existed when you close your eyes and you shut your ears and everything else is what's real. And, but for Paul, Jesus makes it clear, you don't have a body, you are a body. And so when the Corinthians ask, Pastor Paul, what do we do? Paul again asks, who are you? Whether you're asking about sex or the food or friendship, the question is always, who are you? You're a temple. You have the capacity to house God in you, the very spirit of God. And you have to run that ethical calculus every time you make decisions. You have to say, I am valuable to God. And because that decision, whatever it is, will affect you, And it affects all those other bodies out there carrying God. I'm not sure, but it might even affect God too. Now this is the part where I don't want to be completely naive. I'm a very white, male, straight body. That's who I am. That's how I was thrust into this world. And I'm trying to tell a whole lot of people who are not uh, all of my intersections that you are a place where God dwells too. And that's not radical. And I've talked about Jesus as a body that wouldn't stay buried, and that's not always radical. Well, yeah, that is. But it's a story that we know. But I recognize that I don't always have to worry about my godliness being seen. And this work of being a body is not easy. I think Ta-Nehisi Coates in Between the World and Me talks about what it means uh, somewhat the best about being a black body in this country. Uh, And when I was searching for some of his phrasing on a different topic, I found this, and I decided, no, this this is the thing that really gets to this one part. But for all of our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains and blocks airways and it rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, and breaks teeth. The work of seeing God in one another and knowing that we hold God in our bodies is the most potently political act. This is scandal. This is radical for all of the difference in time and place between those Corinthians and we, uh, Chicagoans, we are in the same boat. To say that God is here and here and here and here and not up there, but here in these bodies is nothing short of heresy to a culture that wants to say bodies are disposable. We'll never get the calculus, this ethic, right. We will never know what to do unless we know who and whose we are. It's too important because lives depend on the answer. So when your body, which is to say you, 
shows up to protest or to stand in solidarity with women's rights or for science or creation or climate or for saying that black lives matter, that peace of God in you, it shows up too. And when your body, which is to say you, shows up in moments of lovemaking, when you can't tell where you end and the other person begins, that peace of God shows up too. And when your body, which is to say you, shows up to hold the hand of someone who's sick or to rock a crying baby or to give someone a hug to prove that they're not unlovable or untouchable, that peace of God shows up too. It may not seem like it. It may not seem like it all of the times, but this is good news. You are a body that God has loved and saved. And this isn't just good news for the neck up. This good news is not just for white bodies and cisgendered bodies and male bodies and straight bodies or young bodies or parent bodies or able bodies. This is good news for all. That's what's the most important thing, I think, whenever we start this discussion where things might get messy about our bodies and how that relates to our fate is to remember that this is good news for all of the bodies, the black and brown and Asian and American Indian bodies. This is good news for trans bodies and female bodies and queer bodies and old bodies and childless bodies and not neurotypical bodies and disabled bodies and large bodies and small bodies, too. You have a little piece of God that's walking around in you to equip you, to love you, and to heal you, and enjoy you. And in the same way, you have that to love and heal and enjoy those other bodies too. Don't you know, ask Pastor Paul, don't you know that you're a dwelling place for God?